We're going to continue what we looked at last week. So we're going to look at the man who was the embodiment of chaos. There was nothing right with this guy. And this morning we're going to see him sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, as Jesse brought up last week, went out of his way, crossed over the sea to this uh, forsaken Gentile land to call this one crazed man. And we're going to see how he's, he's used this morning. And he casts out a legion of demons, thousands of demons, brings this man into his, his right mind, and shows his power at the very words that come out of his mouth. And he shows their end as they commit themselves to an early destruction. So those are the events of the casting out of the demons and the transforming of the man and his deliverance from his oppression. But this morning we're going to see the responses to that and how the people react to him, the transformed, the restored, and how people react to Jesus, the restorer, the transformer. And so we're going to see three things in each. We're going to see the three phases of rejection that happen here. It begins with awe, and that shifts quickly into fear, and then it shifts into expulsion. Get out of here. But then we're going to see the three phases of transformation. The devotion, which leads to confession, which, which comes out in proclamation. And so as we look at this man this morning and kind of marvel at what Jesus has done, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to marvel. Like we should never lose the excitement every time we see someone come from death to life, from blindness to sight, from chaos to calm. Because like this man, his story is very much like our story. Now certainly the details are different. The process and the effects are the same. I'm blind. I'm lost. I am in chaos and darkness. And Jesus comes and finds me. And I see. And I'm in my right mind. And the shackles are dropped off. And if you know Jesus Christ, if you have come to know Him in faith and been united with Him, you have been just like this demon-possessed man taken from the, the dominion of Satan, from the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air into the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ as your King and your Lord. You've been taken from slavery to your flesh in, in bondage to the thing that you hate the most. And now, slave to righteousness. You've been given a new life and a new master. A new identity. But as we think about this, for most people, for most of you, the, the transition is not that extreme. I mean, hopefully, none of you have had legions of demons cast out of you. If you have, you have all the more to be thankful for. Nor are we to think that everyone should. I mean, praise the Lord that everyone is not possessed by demons before coming to Christ. But, every one of us, whether it is immediate or it is gradual, you will have evidences of Christ working in you. This man, we see it overnight. And many of us, it, it's a, it, it happens over time. But what you we'll see is that that transformation does not stop as we see in this, this man. If Jesus truly does bring you to new life and make you a new man in him, that, that growth will continue. That fruit will bear. And we see this in this man and we see the parallels in ourselves. 
He doesn't bring us out of our sin and our old nature just to be slightly better. But our spiritual growth, our sanctification in Him over time, we look more and more like Christ. And one day we will be like Him in glory. And the gospel is full of us being saved and our salvation being complete in Him because we have first been justified in Him. And so, uh, I want to read the entire passage in its context this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Because if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember a lot of these details. But I want us to get the, the context as we get the conclusion this morning. So, Mark 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately... There met him uh, uh, out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, speaking of Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to those pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go, go. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we don't marvel at how awesome you are. Forgive us when we are not in wonder every time we think of your awesome deeds, your great works. Forgive us when we minimize you and think of you as ordinary. Forgive us when we take you for granted. You are most high God. There is none higher, there is no other. You are the creator and recreator of all things. You transform what is dead and lifeless and dark and chaotic and make it calm and bring peace 
and hope and life. You are our God. This is what you have done for and in your church. And we praise you, the God of restoration, redemption, deliverance. The God of life and joy and love and peace and mercy. Let us, as we read your word this morning, be led by and transformed by your spirit. It would come to know you rightly and fear you rightly and serve you rightly. That you would be glorified in all we think and say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this text this morning, I want you to see all of the reactions as we walk through this. The intense responses. There are no mild responses to this. This is so stark and so sobering that everyone has an intense reaction. I mean, look at verse 14. They fled. They run. They don't walk. They take off to tell everybody. They're in awe. They're in complete wonder. Verse 15. We see the restoration. This man goes from crazy to calm. And everyone is astounded. But then everyone fears. And fears greatly. And they can't keep it to themselves. They, they must tell one another. There's, this, there's this, this urge to, have you seen it? Can you believe it? And there's this, this curiosity and concern. How can this be? What is this power? As we see in verse 16, they're still talking about it as they're face to face with this man. Then verse 17, they beg Jesus to depart. To depart. This is not just passive rejection. Yeah, Jesus, I don't have time for you. This is active, passionate rejection. Get out of here. Leave now. And then the begging we'll see on the other side is the man who's transformed. This devotion that is also not passive but passionate. Please let me be with you. And then he is charged with this beautiful confession. This necessary part of deliverance. Of telling what God has done. And then the passionate confession that is done publicly. The proclamation. There is nothing suggestive or weak or gray about this account. Everything here is bold and, and loud. This is meant to wake us up and see that there are no slight reactions to Jesus. So I, I kind of want you to get that in mind as we, as we walk through this. So one, or let's begin in verse 14. So remember everything we saw in 1 through 13, this amazing event of the demons being cast out and cast into these pigs and their livelihood running over the cliff and these herdsmen not knowing what to do. They take off in fear and they, they're, they're, they're so amazed they ran and tell everybody. Now if you're from the north like me, you say everybody. But some of you people from the south, you say everybody. They went and told everybody. And country, city, it doesn't matter. Anyone who had ears to listen 
They would run and tell. Because this is so amazing, but also I think conveniently they're trying to set the record straight. Uh, it wasn't us. We didn't lose the, we, we didn't lose the pigs. It wasn't us. There, there's probably somebody behind who, who owned the, the, the pigs who was not happy. It was this guy, just to make sure, set the record straight. We saw it, but we didn't do it. But then everyone listened, and they came. And they came to see what happened. And they all came, and they, and, and they came to Jesus. Good or bad, Jesus draws a crowd. Because when he teaches, people come. When he casts out demons, people come. When he performs miracles, people come. And they came, you see at the end of 14, to see what had happened. The, it's not always for faith. It's often for the spectacle. I mean, Jesus could write a how-to book on how to draw big crowds, yet not found a, a megachurch. And this, is, this is kind of his, his, his ministry. Everyone comes, but there is a lot of winnowing that will happen. And we're going to look at some of this, this winnowing here because... As we're going to see, that following Jesus is not easy. And it is, it is not without cost. And so these people are going to weigh that, that cost. But first we're going to look at their reaction in, in verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Look at this list here. They saw the demon-possessed man. This amazing conversion. Look at this transformation. They saw the demon-possessed man. That's still his identity. That's still his name. That's all we know of him. The one who had the legion, that guy, if you remember, there were, there were demons, lots of them. He's sitting there. He's clothed. That's a plus. Went from naked to putting some clothes on. Um, so we don't know how long he sat at Jesus' feet, but certainly long enough to get some clothes and, and, and to listen to Jesus teach. And he's in his right mind. Like the calm storm from chaos that makes no sense and everyone is fearful of to this man sitting calm at Jesus' feet. If you heard me talk about this before, in Eastern culture, when you sit, it is a sign of respect. When you sit under a teacher, it is a sign of submission to his authority. He is sitting there listening, learning, submitting. This is in complete contrast to where he was before. And these people see this. Is that the guy? Yep, that's him. We see the scars. We, we, we've heard him wailing in the tombs and on top of the mountains. But we can't believe our eyes. And then reality sets in. And they are afraid. So deal with the fear in the moment. But I want you to think about this guy and think about these details. As so I came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been the legion and sitting there, why does Mark bring all this stuff up? We remember him. We just read him a few, few verses ago. Why does Mark bring all these details up? Because it is important that we recount all of the wondrous deeds of the Lord. And that is a great lesson for us. How often do we do that? How often do we meditate? God, you saved me from this sin and this sin and this, this, this darkness that you pulled me out of. How often do you just sit, if you are in Christ, how often do you sit and reflect, man, what has Jesus done for me? I remember who I used to be. I remember what I used to do. Do you praise him and just meditate and think on all the areas of your life, life he brought from chaos to peace? And again, it does not have to be as drastic as this man, but every one of us, if you have been transformed by his 
grace and mercy, you should be able to sit and think and reflect on everything He has done for you. And do you marvel when you see it in others? Man, I praise the Lord for the growth I see in you. Praise the Lord this thing that was sinful in your life He has brought to your awareness and you've, and you've grown in to His glory. I mean, this is just amazing. I want us to stop at moments in this account and think about have we lost the awe and wonder of what God does to people? Have we lost the awe and wonder of the, the transformation from wicked to righteous? Because if you are face to face with it, you should be in awe and wonder. But if you do not know Jesus, it should scare you. You should be deathly afraid, and that's, why, that's what happened to these people. Notice the, the, the common theme in the last couple weeks. We are fearful people. When we are faced with a power we don't understand, with something we don't understand, they were more afraid of Jesus' power than they were the storm. And here, they are more afraid of Jesus' power than they are the man possessed by the demon. Because they realize their own frailty. They realize their own powerlessness. They realize that there is something here that I do not understand and I can't control. And if that power is directed toward me, I should be very afraid. I think that is what's going on in their minds, and it should be a very sobering moment for them. A sobering moment as well. That the chaos that was in this man's life, the screaming, the cutting, the pain, the torment, it is nothing compared to the wrath of God that rests on you apart from Jesus Christ. And it should be sobering when they're faced with God incarnate looking right at them. And so this, this scene develops. They're afraid and, and more people come and the eyewitnesses are telling the story. Now, they had run out and told the story on Mountains and hills and in the cities, everywhere they went. In the city and in the country, they, they told it. But now it's different. Because all these people ran to see if it was true, and now they're looking at this guy. Maybe the shackles are still on his wrist. Maybe the scars are all over him. And they told, verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened, and to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Imagine hearing that story with this transformed man right in front of you. These herdsmen who lost their livelihood. It's incredible. We try to put ourselves into that situation. Imagine hearing all this and seeing it right in front of you. And then, of course, the natural reaction is, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now first, I want you to notice there's a lot of begging going on. Uh, there is a lot of terrified, trembling people begging Jesus, pleading with him, leave, go, get, leave this region. Now we learned something about the region last week. Remember the demons didn't want to leave the region? This week, 
Same text, same context. They want Jesus to leave the region. If the demons love it, and Jesus, and they don't want Jesus there, it should tell us all we need to know about this, this region. It tells us a lot about their, their motivation too. But don't skip this. They come face to face with this amazing miracle, this man who, is, who has been exercised, that thousands of demons coming out of him. And what do they say? They beg him. They plead with him to leave. Now, if you know Jesus, if you have been transformed, if you know that your sin is way closer to that man than it is to Christ, you can't imagine this. How could you send Jesus away? You've just seen a miracle. Why would they beg him to leave? Wouldn't you embrace the one who brought this crazy man to his senses? I mean, that's the logical response, right? This is actually consistent. As we said a moment ago, the miracles were often more spectacle than they were reason for faith. It is the message that transforms hearts. And the miracles just confirm the message. But when they find out who Jesus really is and they see his power, they want nothing to do with him. Get away from me. They want to expel him from the region. And this is the natural heart reaction. This is what we do in our flesh. But why? Simple answer, but a sobering answer. Because the truth is, a complete transformation is intimidating. It asks too much. Because if he can change that guy, what's he going to do to me? And let's be honest, our flesh does not want to change. No one ever finds God. No one ever chooses him. No one would ever choose to leave behind everything that makes us feel comfortable. Everything that makes us feel like ourselves. No one would ever choose that. Let's see. Herd pigs or follow Jesus into eternal life. Hmm. This side of redemption, that makes pure sense. But in your flesh, you know you would never choose that. You know you would never let go of what, what you know what is closest to you. You are terrified of walking away from the false idols and the comfort that you have within yourself. Only by Jesus coming to you and transforming you is that even possible. Because you cannot come face to face with the power of Jesus Christ and assume you can go back to normal life. You must either submit to him or flee from him. And they were unwilling to have their lives and their livelihood interrupted because of Jesus. Jesus calls us to die. Die to ourselves. Die to our identity apart from him. Die to our family and everything that makes us feel like we are enough in and of ourselves. And leave the old behind. But the reality is in and of ourselves, we love ourselves too much. Even being stinking pig herders. We love ourselves too much to submit to him. And this is what's really at play here. 
Because you want to know the crazy thing if you think about this? There is a demon-possessed man living on the hill down the street, crying out day and night, cutting himself. Everyone is terrified. No one goes near this guy. And yet, they try to cast out Jesus. They don't try to send this guy away. They just chain him and leave him there. They would rather have a demon on, the le- on a leash than Jesus Christ in their region. This is the sinful man at his core. This is what our hearts desire. They would rather have the demon-possessed man than Jesus. Think about that. So next time you think that, oh, this person is good, they do a lot of good deeds, and, and I think they're all right where they are. That is their heart. They would take the whole world in exchange for their soul, or just a couple of pigs. And that's the response of the herdsmen. This complete rejection that begins awe and, and then fear and then get out of here and expulsion. But there's the other side to this. The one man, the man who is transformed, verse 18. And as he, speaking of Jesus, is getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him, again Jesus, that he, the man, might be with him, Jesus. This is hard enough in the English. Try reading this in the Greek. There's a lot of just pronouns that, that string together. But if you can kind of follow the logic here, okay, Jesus knows he's not welcome. Jesus came for this man. This was his purpose, and he's, he's heading back. His home base is, is Capernaum. His mission is to the lost sheep of Israel, and he goes to leave. And this guy's like, well, why am I staying here? I'm, running, I'm going with you. And this is fitting devotion. There is no more natural response in Jesus bringing you to life than to say, I, I want to stay with you. Where else could I go? Please don't leave me here. You've already brought me out of the tombs. You've already brought me to life. He's begging him that he might be with him. This is the same language we saw in chapter 3 when Jesus calls the apostles and appoints them. The first thing that was required of them was that they would be with him. That is the most important thing, that you are with Christ. And this is his greatest desire. There is no greater desire than to say, I want to be with Jesus. And did you catch the word repeated here again? And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The third instance of begging, or fourth instance we see of begging, twice from the demons, once from the herdsmen, once from this man. So different. The other ones are all self-preservation. Jesus, don't destroy us yet, send us into the pigs. Jesus, get out of here because you're going to interrupt my way of life. This begging is different. Jesus, please, I want to be with you. This is beautiful and fitting devotion, begging. And this is an important contrast between the begging that was going on before, as if their life depended on it, and the begging that is going on now, because his new life depends on what Christ has done in him. And then Jesus, as he always does, does not do what we would expect him to do. Because what would we do? We'd say, sure, come. You are, you, are, you are mine. Come in the boat with me. Wherever I go, you will go. And he does something that's surprising to this man and certainly surprising to us. He says, Jesus did not 
permit him. Oh, wait. If you remember, when the demons asked him, send us into those pigs, he permitted them. You think about that? He gave the demons what they wanted. But this man who loves him and is devoted to him, he says no. Huh? Well, what do we learn here? It is not always best to get what you ask for. Because the wicked get exactly what they think they need best. But the amazing thing is that the children of God get exactly what Jesus thinks we need best. Even if it's not what makes us most comfortable in the moment. So think about that. When you ask Jesus for something and you're upset when he doesn't answer the way you want and when you want. Think about that. That the request of self-preservation that they ask for is the equivalent to being thrown into pigs. Jesus, this is what I want. I'd rather be in the pigs than be uncomfortable. Jesus, do what makes me comfortable. But he asked for a good thing. Why wouldn't Jesus answer this is a good prayer? And many of us, many of you have prayed good prayers that have not been answered the way you thought. This is a good prayer. This is a good thing. And it is a good thing to want to be with Jesus. But is there something better? Because Jesus always does what is best for us and gives him the most glory. There's something better than remaining with Jesus. This is hard for us to imagine. Remember how heartbroken the disciples were when they found out Jesus was, was, was leaving them. Don't leave us. We want to go wherever you go. And Jesus told them, you don't know what you're asking. You can't follow me where I'm going. But I have something better. I'm going to send my spirit who will transform you and teach you and seal you and remind you of me. There is something better. But inside us, there's that little bit of fear like, maybe Jesus won't come back. Maybe Jesus won't hold on to me. But the beautiful news is once you are his, you will be with him forever, and it is guaranteed. It is sealed with his blood. So that's why Jesus can confidently say, no, go. Don't worry about being with me now because you will be with me forever. I've got something greater for you in the moment. But how many of us have begged Jesus to take us out of our current situation. Current relationship, current job. Thing that, all right, Jesus, you, you have to get me out of this now. It would be better to be anywhere with you. Or just come and, and, and take me home now. I can't take this anymore. You didn't get the answer you thought you wanted, and you thought Jesus didn't care. But how often does he not permit us because he's still using us and he's still growing us. You think this man grew as he goes into the cities and proclaims Jesus, as he goes home and tells his friends? There's something that Jesus was doing in him, that God was working in this man's life that could not be done in the boat with Jesus. Think about that. Why are we still here? Why has Jesus not come back yet? Because there is growth that happens now 
before he returns, before he brings us home, that would not have happened otherwise. And it's a good thing. Because wherever Jesus has you, he knows where you are. He has you there because that's where he wants you. And you can fight against it. You say, okay, Jesus, I will respond. Because we don't realize how often we think we know best. And we're unwittingly trying to bend God's will to our own. You know, how often are we so consumed with our decisions, so consumed with ourselves when we make decisions? Whatever's safest, whatever's easiest. Jesus, I want to be right next to you so I never have to do anything difficult again. And that's a good request. But there's a good reminder for us that following Jesus is anything but safe, anything but predictable, anything but comfortable if we're finding our comfort in anything other than him. But there's a beautiful posture in this. Because we don't see how the man responds. But we see what he does. This posture is a good desire for us. And I want to just you know, land here for a second before we, we move on. Because I think this is a good sticking point for us. There's a heart that we can desire. And a faithful prayer to ask for joy and contentment wherever the Lord has us. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 7. Whenever you want to look at what is wrong in the church, we go to 1 Corinthians. Pick your chapter. What's interesting about 1 Corinthians 7 is it's all about status and relationships. It's a lot about um, marriage in here. But what's interesting is that of all the issues that are going on in the church in Corinth, there is a great um, discontentment within the people. And so they're wondering, okay, what's this new Christian thing about? Does it mean I get a, a higher status? Does it mean I get recognized here on earth? And look at Paul's counsel. This is what happens when you come to Christ. This is what Paul advises you. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 7. I'm pick up in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision i don't even know how that even is possible but was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised let him not seek circumcision for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of god so think about that for a moment no we don't have circumcision debates now but we certainly have debates about well should i be doing this or should i be doing this should I carry myself this way? Should I do this outward mark or this outward mark? What is most important? Keeping the commandments of God, no matter where you are. And he was on. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. If you're a slave, if you're a minimum wage worker, be joyful in it. Be content with it. If you can, if you can move up, do it. But don't let that be your identity. Don't be consumed with that. Be content wherever you are. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Because even in the lowest possible station, you have everything in Christ. Likewise, he who is free when he called is a bondservant of Christ. I love how he levels the playing field here. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 
So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him uh, remain with God. This is so hard to be content. It's so hard to trust the Lord where you are and praise him even when life is not going the way you think it should. And Jesus has not solved all of your problems yet. But we wouldn't learn, it wouldn't grow if we didn't. One of my favorite passages on this is Philippians 4. And so the most common bumper sticker, bracelet, t-shirt, Philippians 4.13 is favorite of athletes because it means I can run this race, I can climb this, this mountain, I can do everything I want to do. It is very self-serving, but it is beautiful in its context. And most Christians get this wrong. If you have the bracelet or the sticker, at least understand what the verse means. Look at what Paul says. When they're concerned about him, he says, I'm not in need, verse 11, picking up in the middle of the verse. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not your personal mud run race verse. This is if you have no legs and will never run, Christ is your strength. This is if everything is taken from you. You rest in Him. This is if everything is given to you. You don't find your identity in that. That is what it means to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there's a beautiful contentment in that. I just want to encourage you guys. Every one of us has been there. Many of you are there right now. If you're in a place that is uncomfortable or uneasy, it's because God is using it and working in you. Be content and be joyful in it. Because often, you're there for yourself, and if you can stop thinking about yourself for a moment, you're there for someone else. God uses our situations and our faithfulness to work in other people's lives. And we're going to see that in a moment when Jesus sends him to his, to, to his friends. And so I thought, I've seen many examples of this, and one that I, I've, I always loved early on in, in the life of the church. Um, you know, I think about one of our members, Marissa, who was in a job that no one really likes being in a call center. No one really enjoys being on the phone all day. But being faithful there, being joyful there, she got to share the gospel with one of her coworkers. And one of the, her coworkers came here, and we began to meet. And by her faithfulness and continuing to hear the gospel and praying together, I watched Terry go from death to life. And Marissa's faithfulness, and I've seen so many of those other stories with you, just being faithful where you are, not lamenting that I'm at this job I don't enjoy, but seeing someone who is hurting and needed love and needed to hear the gospel and seeing fruit come out of that. She was not in that job for her. And if anyone has seen Terry's smile and got one of those big bear hugs when you walk in here, thank an uncomfortable situation and the Lord using the gospel for that. That's just one of, one of many. And so, kind of puts it in perspective when Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. 
So then maybe the first question you want to ask is, wait, this guy has friends? How does that work? Uh, so apparently he has not always been demon-possessed. Um, this language in the Greek is tough. It's, it, it's go to your own. Some translate family, some translate friends, some translate your people. The idea is the same. So if your translation says something different, it's okay. The idea is the same. Those who are closest to you, that is your first missionary responsibility. That is who you are called to. If anyone knows how chaotic you were, they do. Go to them first. And that is such a loving calling, this, this command of, of Jesus. He loved this man so much that he sought him out and transformed him. And his love would go to those closest to this man. And he will do it out of love for Christ. He loves them by confessing or speaking with them what the Lord has done for him. And so if you're in a difficult situation, you feel like, why am I not here? Or why, why am I here? Why have I not been taken out yet? There's probably somebody there who needs to hear what Jesus has done for you. And he's, and so you know, he sat at Jesus' feet. We don't know how long Jesus was there. Was it an afternoon? Did they camp out for a couple of days? We don't know. But he sat at Jesus' feet. He got theology 101, evangelism 101, and he sent him out to go tell everybody. Amazing how simple the gospel was. This is who I used to be. This is who I am now. This is who did it for me. And he sends him out with that. And I love that Jesus does not leave his people in the current state. Oh, we, we wish he would. All right, Jesus, just save me, sanctify me, and park me in a corner somewhere until you return. But he does not do that with us. He sends us out. And the gospel does not have to be that complicated. This man had a very simple gospel. Very simple story of transformation. There's this guy. He came. Jesus probably sat him down and explained who he was to some degree. He came to save broken people like me. I was possessed by demons and now here I stand before you. Believe in him. He can do that for you too. You can do that. We can do that. I mean, the, the gospel is that simple. I, I, I love one of C.S. Lewis's greatest images that he speaks of the gospel as something so simple and shallow that even a child can play in his waters, but something so deep that it can drown an elephant. So many of you are afraid to share the gospel because you're trying to drown an elephant in, in the first conversation. Splash around in the shallows with a the, with, with the child. Now, the depths of the gospel, we need that. And as someone grows and matures, teach them how to swim, but don't just throw them into the deep end and assume that they're going to do the backstroke. The simple gospel is that God took on flesh so that sinners like this demon-possessed man and sinners like me could be transformed. He gives them life and life everlasting and makes them new. He sits them down at his feet from chaos into calm. That is simple and it is easy and it is true. And it is complex because we've got election, we've got justification, and we've got propitiation and all of these theological words and, and, and adoption, all these beautiful things. We under, understand the intricacies of what God has been doing redemptively and legally and familiarly. And we should wonder at those things but never lose the simplicity of the gospel. 
Never lose the sim- simplicity that God, I, I love that B.B. Warfield, like the, the, the great theologian who's written many books and many volumes on, used way too many words to describe far little, but he says, what is the gospel? How do you sum it all up? God saves sinners. You can pull so many things out of that. It is God who works in the lives of, of sinners, and we don't, often we forget that and we're intimidated. I don't know all the answers. You know that you were blind and now you see. You know that you were dead and now you're alive. You know that you were lost and, and now you were found. And you know who did it. And you know by whose power, not your own. And so this is just natural for this man to do this. So he says, go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now you might have missed this the first read through. How much the Lord has done for you. Speaking of God here, how much has God done for you? Mark very quickly makes this connection in verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. There is no doubt in Mark's mind what Jesus is talking about. Who healed the man? Jesus did. Who healed the man? The Lord did. Now go and tell what the Lord has done. That is the message. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what he did. He went into the Decapolis. This confession from his friend turns into proclamation. Preaching. If you share your faith enough, you'll begin to get passionate about it. And you may never stand in a pulpit, but you will probably preach. You will probably proclaim from your lips what Jesus has done for you. And he went everywhere. The Decapolis were these ten cities around the Sea of Galilee. All Gentile. Very little Jewish influence. And he went to an audience that, that had not heard Jesus' name yet. It's interesting that the first preaching ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles did not come from Jesus' lips. Jesus himself says when a Canaanite woman comes to him, he says that I've been sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not sent for Canaanites and Samaritans and Greeks and Romans. It's amazing that Jesus won't go preach to them, but he can. And he sends this man who was a demon-possessed maniac five minutes ago to proclaim his gospel. And you think he can't use you? It's beautiful that the good news went all throughout the region that rejected Christ by this one transformed man. Praise God. And so before we we close this, I want you to consider something else that you may have noticed. Someone someone asked me, well, who is this guy? We, we we, We never got a name from him. Yeah. All this. He's still known as the man who had the demon. He's still known as the, 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 the demon-possessed man. This whole section with, with no name. He is preserved in history by his affliction and by his transformation. No more name. And so often we are known by our sins and our shortcomings. But how awesome would it be to be known by what Jesus Christ has done in you? How awesome would it be known that he transformed me? I've shared this quote with you before. But I love Count Zinzendorf, uh, Zinzendorf on, his, uh, on, on, on his tombstone. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That is a beautiful legacy. Because Jesus Christ gets all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. What's his name? It doesn't matter. His name is new man. His name is new creation. His name is one with Christ. His name is adopted son of the Father. And so just briefly... 
just an exhortation to leave with this. Let us never stop marveling at the transformation of, of Christ. Let us never stop being in awe and wonder. Let us never lose our devotion. Let us want to cling so tightly to Christ like this man. But also never let us lose our obedience. I will be faithful to you. I will keep your commandments. I will confess your name. I will proclaim your name. Let us never lose that zeal. Because look what God has done in this man, and it should remind us, look what God has done in us. And because of what he has done, because of what he's done through Christ, we have all things in Christ. And if that shouldn't give us confidence and boldness and comfort and devotion, nothing will. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. The God who spoke the world into existence, yet still takes time to speak life into a man filled with demons. Lord, every time we look into the face of someone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, we look into a face someone who has been transformed. And we should be in awe. And we should want to tell everyone what you have done. How awesome you are. How glorious are your works. Like the psalmist, we should say, look what God has done for my soul. My soul has found its rest in him. What a beautiful thing to find our rest in him. It's tying together what we see in Hebrews, that in Christ we share in all things and we share in the beautiful rest that this man does. Resting at his feet, resting in his commands, trusting that if Jesus tells me to go, Jesus tells me to share, Jesus tells me to preach, that is a good thing. And the same power that transformed me will use my words and my efforts for his glory. It is in his name we pray. Amen.